The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Open up to Revelation chapter 2 as we continue our study by the Apostle John, the end of his life, sometime in the 90s A.D., where he wrote this, the last book of the Bible, the last book of the New Testament, probably around 95 A.D., And just by way of reminder, he was a prisoner on the island of Patmos out in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea at a penal colony. And his crime was that he was a pastor. He was a man of God. He boldly preached and taught about Jesus Christ and refused to relent. And as a result, the authorities had him arrested and sent off to this rock out in the middle of the sea as a prisoner, and it was there that the Lord Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, came from heaven, somehow, literally, personally, supernaturally, and appeared to John the Apostle on this island of Patmos and unveiled the content of Revelation. What we have, Revelation 1-22. through Most of Revelation is about the future and how all of world history is going to end. But right now we're in the beginning part of the book, the introduction, which is chapters 1-3. through And these are direct messages to churches that John actually was responsible for overseeing and shepherding during his day. These were all in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And at this time, John the Apostle was probably the pastor of the church at Ephesus, or at least one of the main leading elders. And so these seven churches there in Asia Minor, the Lord Jesus Christ gives all this information, gives it to John and commands John to communicate to this to these seven churches and... The Holy Spirit of God has guaranteed that this message goes to all churches throughout all the ages. So, although this was a message to churches 2,000 years ago, every one of these messages to these seven churches is just as vital and pertinent and practical for us today. So let's go ahead and look at it. We are on the fourth church that Jesus is addressing. We saw already that the Lord Jesus Christ addressed the church at Ephesus. Then he addressed the church at Smyrna, which was the persecuted church, a holy church. And then what we saw last week was Jesus addressed the church at Pergamum. And this week we're going to see Jesus addresses the church at Thyatira. So let's go ahead and look at it, verses 18 through 29. Follow along with me as I read. The Lord Jesus Christ talking to his people. And he says, And to the messenger of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and His feet are like burnished bronze, says this, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent. She does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will cast her upon a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence. And all the churches will know that I am He who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds 
But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. And he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And I would say the same thing to you. If you have a spiritual ear and you are sensitive to the Word of God and the truth of God, this message is for you. This message is for me. It's incredibly practical. Let's go ahead and look at it. I call this church of these seven churches, Thyatira, the immoral church. The immoral church. They allowed immoral teaching. They allowed immoral living. Two times in the passage, verse 20 and 21, he says you tolerate immorality. Immorality is the Greek word porneia, where we get the word pornography. It means all illegitimate sex outside the confines of marriage between a man and a woman. Generic term, umbrella term. Porneia. This church had a problem with allowing it not the only church that had a problem with immorality or pornea because we saw Pergamum last week allowed pornea or immorality or tolerated it. So what's the difference? Well, the difference is Thyatira was worse. Thyatira was Pergamum in overdrive or Pergamum on steroids in terms of the compromise that they allowed in the church, seriously. And I came up with uh, four points I just want to highlight as we look to this church and see what the historical message is, but also see how this can apply to us here at GBF and in our own personal lives as Christians. So let's go ahead and look at those four highlights from Jesus' message to Thyatira as He not only speaks to them historically, but also to our very hearts through the Holy Spirit and us as a congregation. Because we want to learn from all these churches, every church by way of reminder. Every one of these churches is a real church. They are Christian churches. They all have strengths and weaknesses. Some have Smaller weaknesses, some have just egregious and gross, almost unthinkable sins going on in their church. But this is the important thing, Christian. These are real churches. The reason I'm saying that is it's so easy for us to look down our nose today and look at a church across the way or across the country and because of a known sin or compromise that goes on there, we write them off as totally apostate and not even a Christian church. That is illegitimate to do that. Jesus is addressing these churches as churches and there are believers who know Jesus Christ personally in every one of these churches. At least the way Jesus is addressing them. They're legitimate churches and only Jesus Christ Himself can make this kind of judgment and assessment about whether it's a legitimate church or not because only He knows the hearts of the people. So let's go ahead and look at point number one and that is the congregation. Number one, the congregation. This is the church in Thyatira. That's verse 18. And John uses the same model and sequence for all seven churches. He addresses the church by name first and then its blessings and what they were doing well and then its weaknesses and where they were compromising and a rebuke and a challenge from Jesus and then an invitation for all who would hear of good news that can be blessed by in the future in obedience to Christ. So number one is the congregation, the church in Thyatira. Jesus says unto the messenger of the church in Thyatira, the messenger was probably an individual, probably a man, a a leader, a representative of that church, and 
uh, John was going to send this letter of revelation to some messenger and they crossed the water and they started in Ephesus and literally maybe it was seven men with an entourage and they traveled from Ephesus and went north to Smyrna and then they went to Pergamum and they reached the furthest north stuff in Pergamum and now they're going to go down a little bit. They're starting to go south and east where they're going to head now to Thyatira and then after Thyatira they'll go to Sardis and the Philadelphia and then down to Laodicea which is the last destination. So it's a postal route in John's day. So this is logical in terms of how they're proceeding here and why they're in the order that they are. Uh, so first we look at this church and the city in which this church resided. Thyatira, of all these seven cities that were in Asia in John's day, Thyatira was the smallest city. It had the smallest population. Uh, Thyatira today actually exists as a city with about 100,000 people in it, unlike Ephesus, which is just in desolation and ruins with nobody really living there. Uh, today, Thyatira is in what is known as modern-day Turkey, and the city name is Akisar. Akisar, it's called. Uh, historically, Thyatira is about 40 miles southeast of Pergamum, and it's about 50 miles from the Mediterranean Sea, so unlike Ephesus and uh, Smyrna, it's not a port city, so it's inland. About 190 B.C., this city historically was annexed by Rome and became the possession of the Roman Empire. One of the benefits of that is that they enjoyed the peace that Rome provided. As a matter of fact, uh, Thyatira began to grow and thrive because of that peace, and they were on a main thoroughfare of a road that allowed it access to other local cities, and as a result, it thrived in terms of commercial business and trade with other local cities. And they had the freedom to do that. And so they began to progress historically and they actually reached their zenith as a city Thyatira did in about the 90s or the turn of the century when John was writing is when Thyatira historically reached its peak. Um, it was known, every one of these cities historically was known for something that dominated in their city. And this city, Thyatira, was known for being a, fl a flourishing commercial center a flourishing commercial center and it was known for having more guilds and trade centers than any city in Asia during that time. Guilds are kind of like unions that we have today. And trades were skills that different workers had. In particular, the, the guild and skill that dominated and flowed in a renowned way from the city of Thyatira was their work with uh, wool textiles, and dyeing. And they came up with purple tie that was cherished by the then-known world. Purple dye. And I want to refer you to a passage in the book of Acts chapter 16 with an incredible woman, a godly woman, who's a total contrast of another woman in the church at Thyatira. And in Acts 16, if you don't have your passage, I'll just read it here. The Apostle Paul was on one of his missionary journeys. He was above Asia Minor, uh, maybe 300 plus miles away in the city of Philippi. And as he was preaching, there was a woman there that he came across. And she was a God-fearer. She was a Gentile. She was not a Jew. She worshipped this Yahweh God that she heard about. She had a fear of God. She was not a Christian yet when she heard the Gospel message from the Apostle Paul as he was on his missionary journey. And then Paul was preaching and she was able to hear Paul's message, the Gospel message. Her name was Lydia. It's a great name, isn't it? It's a beautiful Lydia's name. No, yeah, I love that name. I don't know what Lydia means, but it's a great name. It's a pretty name. Actually, I, I looked it up and it's hard to find its original meaning, but 
This woman named Lydia heard the Apostle Paul preaching. And in Acts 16.14 it says this about her. A certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira. See, that's her city here. She's hundreds of miles away from home. She's probably relocated. She probably has her own guild. She, probably, she is licensed in the city of Thyatira. She's probably a wealthy woman. Her trade is probably doing well. And she's moved to Philippi for whatever reason. She has a home there, we know from the context. And she's doing business there on behalf of her guild, which makes, and we'll see that, a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira. She was a seller of purple fabrics. That's what Thyatira was known for from these guilds. Valuable material. She was a worshiper of God. She was listening to Paul as he preached. Here's one of the greatest phrases in the entire Bible, in my opinion. I love it. She's listening to the Gospel and it says, and the Lord opened her heart. There is no clearer picture of God's sovereignty anywhere in Scripture. Amazing. The Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Salvation is of God in His sovereign grace. Removed it the satanic blinders so she could see and hear and believe in the Gospel. It's awesome. She got saved. Verse 15, not only that, she went and told her relatives about the Gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ and her changed life and people in her household got saved. Verse 15 says, when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, uh, Paul and his companions, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So this is where Lydia got saved. So Lydia was from Thyatira and it was a city known for its production of wool and these kind of things and purple dye. So that's what it was known for historically. And by the way, uh, if you wanted to, like I said, these guilds were like unions that we have today. Like to be comparable here in, a, in California, if you wanted to be a teacher in a public school, you have to become a part of the union. There are hoops you have to jump through. You have to get your credential. You have to do your student teaching. You have to join the union in the state of California which many people find not to be a good thing. Many people find that to be a compromise of their personal and spiritual convictions. Because here in California, as is true in many unions, they have their biases. They have their slant. They have their convictions. They have their agenda. And sometimes when you join a union, you do it against your conscience. You're going against the flow. Because sometimes a union can stand for something that is the very antithesis of your convictions, religiously speaking. And to be a part of that union could violate your, it could challenge your faith, violate your conscience. They could ask you to do things that you don't want to do. They could ask you to do things that you don't even think are right biblically, and then you're in a pickle. You're in a dilemma. What do you do? That is exactly what was going on here in Thyatira. Because if you wanted to be in any kind of a trade, guild, or business, you had to become a part of a local guild. And the problem was they were pagan guilds. Every guild had its own deity that was its mascot and that they honored and that they had to do homage to. So if you joined a guild, you had your representative pagan god. And on a routine and regular basis, you had to give homage to that god as a union member, usually through banquets and feasts and all kinds of food and immorality that went hand in hand with it Nothing less than a sexual orgy. So if you become a Christian in that culture, you can see the dilemma that someone would have faced. Had Lydia gone back to Thyatira, she would have confronted a tremendous challenge regarding her faith because now she was a born-again Christian with the Spirit of God living in her. Could she go to these regular routine feasts that dominated Thyatira and the entire business, all these guilds? 
This was the greatest challenge that Christians faced in the city of Thyatira. They didn't face uh, Roman persecution like the other cities did because uh, it was not a center of, rel- of religious uh, priority for the Roman government in the city of Thyatira. So that was the issue at hand. That was the challenge. Uh, this church in Thyatira is not commented on in the book of Acts of how it was started, but we do know that in Acts 19.10, it said for two years the Apostle Paul preached the Word of God all throughout Asia, and as a result, many churches came into being. And so it could be that Thyatira, the church of Thyatira, was a byproduct of Paul's preaching ministry or very well could have been a result of uh, Lydia's connection uh, with that city. But we do know it's probably, as John is writing, Thyatira, the church in Thyatira is probably at this point four decades old. It's been around for 40 years. It is an established, institutionalized church. Unlike GBF, they probably had their own building, among other things. So that's the city. That is the congregation. Uh, In addition to that, in verse 18, let's look at Jesus as he is described because right after every church is addressed, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is introduced in characteristics and attributes of how he's going to address that church and what they need to hear, whether it's encouragement or rebuke. And what does Thyatira need to hear first and foremost is scathing, piercing rebuke. Hence the title, The Immoral Church. And that's why Jesus is described as He is in verse 18. Look at it. To the messenger of the church in Thyatira. And then Jesus says, the Son of God. That's the only time that phrase is used about Jesus in the book of Revelation. The Son of God means that Jesus is deity. It means He is God. It doesn't mean He's sub-deity. It doesn't mean that He's inferior to the Father. And that's uh, the loss in translation when we go from Greek to English. Many people say when they hear Jesus is the Son of God that He's inferior to the Father. That is not at all what it means in the Greek language. The Son of God means He has the exact same nature as God does. He is deity. That's what it means. John is clear about this. So the only time in Scripture, in Revelation, where Jesus is addressed as the Son of God, He is deity. Other times He's addressed as the Son of Man. That's where He's the more mild, mediator of His people and His church. The compassionate one. Thyatira doesn't need compassion right now from Jesus. They need a resounding rebuke from none other than deity, God Himself in the flesh. Not only that, He's called the Son of God. Notice how He's described. He has the eyes like a flame of fire. That is judgment. That is omniscience. He searches the minds and the hearts of every person. He even knows the motives, let alone the actions. This is Jesus as judge of the highest order. Not only that, as He's going to search their hearts, He knows what's going on. He is omniscient. He knows all things. At the end of verse 18 it says, and His feet are like burnished bronze. That that is metal that's been in the fire. And it's burning with the hottest heat imaginable. And what you do with it, hot metal like that, is you purge. You burn things. You purify. You burn up the dross. And that's what Jesus is going to do. As He's described in chapter 1, He's walking around among His churches with feet like burnished metal so that He will purge His church. And that's what Jesus does. It is His responsibility. The church is His bride. It is His responsibility to purge, cleanse, purify His church. And He's going to do that. He's going to do it. That's what He's going to do to Thyatira. We're going to see that. So this is the Son of God over His church in judgment. And he's about to unveil His judgment. But before He does that, He's going to commend them for obedience. And that's point number two, the commendation. 
just about every one of these churches is commended for something. And this is don't don't marginalize or minim, minimize the commendation that Jesus gives this church in light of their horrific sin and compromise, because that will be a temptation. They're going to be commended, no matter how bad of a compromise a Christian is involved in. If they're really a Christian, they should be commended for something because God is doing something in their life. Because the Holy Spirit of God lives in every Christian. And there are true Christians at this church in Thyatira. And as a result, the Spirit of God is working. He's working against the flow. He's working with resistance. But He's still working. So let's go ahead and look at uh, what the commendation is. It's ongoing progress is just how I summarized it. Actually, two main things that they were doing well. And Paul describes them in two different ways. And it was good works that they were doing. That's the introductory word. I know your deeds. Jesus says, I know. He's omniscient. I know your deeds. I know your works. I know what you're doing by way of ministry and as a church. And they're good. What is it? Well, things they were doing well. Their love. They were doing deeds of love in an honorable, biblical manner. That's the first thing. And the other thing they were doing well is they had faith. They had real faith. There were some true born-again believers there. As long as you've got true believers in a local congregation, at least you have some light. So that's, those were the good deeds they were doing. They were doing deeds that corresponded with true love. And they were doing deeds that corresponded with true faith. And Jesus commends them for that. They were commended for their love, which takes us back to Ephesus because that was the one thing Ephesus wasn't doing. That was not, that was not a church of love. They forgot to be a loving church. They abandoned that. That was a, a terrible compromise. This church here is the loving church. I should have put, to be fair, not the immoral church, Thyatira, the loving immoral church. That would have been more fair and balanced. Fox News. But anyway. So they were a loving congregation. They had the love of God living in their heart and they expressed this love through actions. We know that because Paul describes how they loved and how their faith manifested itself. By the way, love and faith are attitudes. Spiritual virtues that are attitudes. They are from the heart. They're inside. You can't see them unless they are manifest through actions. So Paul tells us what the actions were of love and faith that they were doing. And so he says the first one, verse 19, They were showing love through service. The Greek word is diakonia, where we get the word deacon from. There are different kinds of words for slaves in the New Testament. There's doulos, who was not a volunteer slave. But then there's a diakonos, who's a volunteer slave. And they were doing diakonia. They were doing voluntary works of ministry and service in the local church out of love that was blessing other people. And this is almost always on a very practical level. In other words, there were needy people in their church, whether it was financial, usually physical needs, whether maybe there were some widows, uh, maybe there were some orphans. And this church was good at it, at least a group of them, were being manifesting physical, practical deeds and works of love to help these people. They had a sincere love for people. These were Christian humanitarian deeds. This is Christian philanthropy. Not to be disparaged, but be commended. And so that's what they were doing. And they were doing it well. Unlike Ephesus, who was not doing this. So they were doing practical needs to help the needy people in their congregation. That was a good thing. Jesus says, keep doing that. Uh, And then they also had faith. They had true, sincere faith. They believed in Christ. They believed in God. 
And uh, their faith corresponded to their perseverance, it says in verse 19. Because they had true faith, they were able to persevere. This word for perseverance always refers to those who are enduring despite persecution from opposition. There were people who didn't like that church and they didn't like Christians. And they were pressing down on them and trying to get them to compromise. And many people in the church at Thyatira would not compromise their faith. And Jesus commends them for that. They were in a hard culture, a pagan culture, worse than San Francisco. And they stood strong. They persevered and they had love. And not only that, at the end of verse 19, he commends them. And he says, as a matter of fact, your, your deeds are good. And as of late, they're grading and they're increasing. You're increasing in the frequency of your love of good deeds and you're persevering in your faith. Which is we're going to see is in contrast to Sardis in chapter 3 as they were going down the tube. Man, you started out good and now you're starting to decline. Thyatira, in the areas where they were doing well, they continued to increase. In other words, they, they were being more and more committed on a grand scale of doing good works, good deeds, reaching out to the community, helping people in their own, uh, own congregation with physical, tangible needs. They were very socially oriented. So it was a good thing. But they lacked balance because they were giving such a priority to this social gospel and social good works at the neglect probably of a greater priority. And that's the common condemnation in number three. Well, what were they condemned for? The condemnation. The rebuke. Basically, tolerance and immorality. Tolerance and immorality. So this is the longest part of the passage there, verses 20 to 24, 25 actually. By the way, Jesus has more to say to the church of Thyatira than any of the seven churches. And the rebuke they get is the most scathing rebuke of any of the churches, by the way. Laodicea is close. As a matter of fact, some of the harshest words ever spoken out of the mouth of Jesus Christ Himself are found right here in this passage. People in the world, if they read this and thought and heard that this was from Jesus' mouth, they wouldn't believe it. Because this is not the warm, lovey-dovey Jesus that they believe. He's all just about lovey-dovey. Goosebumps. Tell me good things. Tickle my ears. That's an unbalanced view of Jesus. So let's look, let's look at the condemnation and the rebuke and what their problem was. Verse 20, but. It's a very strong adversative. You do well, but. We have a major problem in this church is what he's saying. What is the problem? But I have this against you. I, the Lord Jesus Christ, have this against you, church at Thyatira, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel. So what is their first sin? It's toleration. They are allowing sinful behavior to go on and they're not dealing with it. They are not invoking church discipline. They're not scrutinizing everything. They're not doing 1 Thessalonians 5 that Paul told the Christians to do is to examine everything carefully and hold fast to that which is good and abstain from every form of evil. They knew that passage. They weren't doing it. They knew what Jesus said about disciplining the church. If there's sin, confronted, deal with it. Jesus wants a holy church. They just abandoned that and threw it out the window. They were tolerating. They were tolerating false teaching and sexual immorality. By, and those two went hand in hand, by the way. But real Christians were tolerating this. There were real Christians in the church. I don't know why they were tolerating it. And by the way, they were tolerating this for a long period of time. We know this because in verse uh, 21, Jesus said, I gave her time to repent. You, you've been confronted about this sin before. could very well have been that they were confronted previously at another time by John the Apostle himself, who was kind of the pastor over all those churches in Asia Minor. And he was gifted in confronting sin, especially leaders in the church. We know that from Second John and Third John. He was gifted at that. And Jesus says, you've been warned before. I rebuked you for this. I called that woman who's a false teacher and immoral in your church to repent. 
and she did not. So much time has gone by. Jesus is gracious. He allows time. He gives people every opportunity to be wooed, to be convicted, and to repent and turn from their way. Because He has a heart of compassion. He is the Savior. That's what He did with Judas. Constantly wooing Judas to the, to the last kiss on the cheek. And that's what He did with this woman. But anyway, the main sin here is toleration. This is becoming a theme in these churches. Jesus hates it. He hates when Christians in the local church tolerate false teaching and immoral behavior. It makes Him angry. That is not an exaggeration because He commended the church at Ephesus for not tolerating false teaching. And He said in chapter 2, verse 6, yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. You hate the false teaching of the Nicolaitans. And Jesus says, which I also hate. So the first compromise was they were tolerating immoral behavior. More specifically, what were they tolerating? Well, it was spearheaded by one woman that Jesus calls Jezebel. That was not her real name. That was a moniker. That was a slight. That was a sarcastic rebuke to describe her character in a picturesque way that all Christians would know who had an Old Testament because the most vile, compromised woman in the entire Bible was a woman named Jezebel in the Old Testament from 1 Kings and 2 Kings. You read the story about Jezebel. Now, she married Ahab. As a matter of fact, of all at the end of his life, God rebukes Ahab for all of his gross, sick, compromised sins. And the greatest sin he committed was he married that woman, Jezebel. Wow. So you can't come up with a more picturesque, loaded, nuanced term of rebuke than calling some woman Jezebel. It's the worst you could do. That's what Jesus did. And it was effective. You tolerate a woman. You tolerate this woman, Jezebel. Uh, another thing that they did wrong is they tolerated all this, specifically Jezebel, uh, who calls herself a prophetess. Notice, she calls her... So there was this prominent woman in the church at Thyatira who'd been there a long time, probably teaching a Sunday school class, uh, probably uh, starting her own Sunday night service and preaching to a large segment of the congregation, a very influential woman, a powerful one, probably very charismatic, and she had a large following. We know that from later on in the passage. She had children. She had offspring. She had a, a cult and an entourage following her with great loyalty and allegiance. This is a very influential woman in the church. And apparently a lot of people were very intimidated by her and they didn't want to rock the boat so they couldn't rein her in. Powerful woman. Incredibly arrogant because she wasn't a prophetess, which was a legitimate office that a woman could hold in the New Testament. Philip, the evangelist, had four daughters and they were prophetesses. Paul allows for women prophets, prophetesses in Corinthians. God gave the gift of prophecy to females. Prophecy was the ability to speak spontaneously divine revelation straight from God. You stand up, thus saith the Lord. You speak, the Holy Spirit of God speaks through you. You sit down. And you do it corporately in the church. God is the one who gives the gift of prophecy. Notice where she got this gift. She didn't have the gift. It says she called herself a prophetess. She made herself a prophetess. She, she ordained herself. She's self-ordained. This is huge. And that's how she got her foot in the door, by the way. Because a legitimate ministry in a local church for a woman by virtue of public communication was speaking as a prophetess of God. And like I said, and there are strict parameters and guidelines for a prophet in the corporate assembly according to 1 Corinthians 14. Paul was very clear. Number one, we need to maintain decency and order in the local church when people with the gift of tongues and prophets get up and speak. 
And prophets were only allowed to go one to two to three at a time, and that was it in each corporate meeting. And if a woman was prophesying, according to 1 Corinthians 11, she had to have a sign of authority on her head, letting all the congregation know that she was not usurping the authority of a God-ordained man in that church as the leader, pastor, and shepherd of that church. 1 Corinthians 11. She was violating all of that. She got her foot through the door by calling herself a prophetess because God and Paul and John, they allow prophetesses in the local church. And then she assumed she usurped the role of pastor-teacher. Another compromise that they tolerated because that's what it says. Uh, Jezebel, who, call, who point, appointed herself a prophetess, and yet she teaches ongoing present tense. She's become an authoritative preacher and teacher and leader in that church. That was wrong. That was a violation. She teaches, it says in verse 20. She teaches in verse 24. She wasn't supposed to be doing that. I just want to read two passages real quick to remind you of this. Uh, we're talking about God has very specific roles that He has ordained in the church by way of leadership. This has nothing to do with dignity, value. Does God like men or women better? Uh, well, He loves them equally. Every human being, man, woman, child, all made in the image of God, and they have equal inherent value and dignity before God. Every human being made in the image of God. And anybody who puts their faith in Jesus Christ is saved by God. It doesn't matter if you're a man, a woman, child, or not. So in terms of value, inherent dignity, men and women are totally equal. It's man and woman together that reflects the image of God. can't have one without the other. But there are roles, specific roles. This is strictly function. The feminists can't handle these two passages. Because immediately they're thinking, oh, women are inferior. Oh, the Bible is archaic. No, that isn't what it's saying at all. So here's what God told the churches. And the people at Thyatira knew this because the Apostle Paul was the one that gave these mandates to the church. And Paul was the one who started the churches in Asia Minor where these churches were. And here's what he said. 40 years, 30 years previous, he laid down this from God Himself. 1 Timothy chapter 2. By the way, he's saying what I'm about to tell you has to do with how you conduct yourself in the church, the household of God. 1 Timothy 3.15 The household. This is how everybody should conduct themselves in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of the truth. You cannot compromise on these. These aren't just for Paul's day. They transcend time, culture, everything. As long as churches function, this is the guidelines God had given. So he talks about men and women and their appropriate roles in corporate worship. And he talked about the women after talking about the men. And here's what the women need to do. They need to dress modestly and be women of God. And they need to do good works. And they need to be, pursue godliness. And then in verse 11 he says, And let a woman, female, quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. He's talking about in the corporate assembly of the church. Not talking about at home or out on the street or at Awana. It's corporate assembly of the church. Let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness from the elders is what it's talking about. Verse 12. But I do not allow. This is not Paul's opinion. I do not allow. I, the Apostle Paul, an apostle of God Himself, speaking authoritatively, that's what he meant when he said I. Verse 12. This is the Word of God. I, as an apostle, do not allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. In other words, and the Greek text is explicit and specific. A woman is not to have teaching authority, the office of teaching authority in the local church. And again, this has nothing to do with value, dignity. Whatever. This is strictly roles 100%. And people can't get that through their brain. Women have babies. 
Men don't. Right? It's a God-honoring thing. This is God's design. This is how things function best. This is not a bad thing. This is a good thing. This is not a sad thing. This is a blessing to know our roles. So I don't allow a woman to be a pastor, preacher, teacher in the local church. This doesn't... He's not saying that, well, a woman can't be a teacher because we know that God has given women the gift of teaching. <clears throat> See that all over the place. It's also saying, it's not saying that a woman can't ever talk about theology or teach anybody. Uh, women are commended in the New Testament for being evangelists and sharing the gospel. Priscilla and Aquila. Aquila was a woman of God who had to straighten Apollos, the man who was mighty in the Scriptures, out a little bit because his theology was tweaked. And Aquila did that. So God will use women even in a teaching capacity, the bottom line is in the appropriate context. Uh, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise teaching authority over a man, but to remain quiet. That's in the local church in this kind of context right here. Uh, for Why? For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. There it is. This is rooted in creation. This has been God's standard since Genesis chapter 1, and it ain't changing till the future. It will change. It will change in the millennium. So if you are a woman and you want to be liberated and free to the extent that you can't now, just wait till the millennium. And you'll get to rule like a king or a queen or whichever you prefer. Um, let me read one other passage. 1 Corinthians 14 having to do with, and again, Paul talking in that general area and vicinity. And this is a command for all the churches, he says, in chapter 11, verse 16. But in chapter 14, he talks about prophecy and how to do it and how many prophets you need at a time. And you can't have more than three. And if a woman is a prophet, she needs to stand up. Speak prophecy, sit down, make sure her head is covered while she's prophesying. Everything that needs to be done in decency and in order with self-control. We can't confuse anybody, create mayhem. And then he goes on, verse 34 or 14, and he says, and let the women keep silent in the churches. It's talking about this authoritative teaching and preaching role again as leaders in the church. That's what it's talking That's the context. It doesn't mean that a woman can't ever talk in church, whether it's Sunday school, out in the hall, eating your donut, the fellowship meal. That isn't what it's about. Let the women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak or teach the Word of God in this context as pastors, but let them subject themselves just as the law also says. And if they desire to learn anything specifically in the corporate context when the preaching is going on, then let them ask their own husbands at home if they are married. You start there first. Ask your own. There's a novel concept. Wives, ask your husband as though he actually knows something. That's what it says in Scripture. God will honor that. And then he concludes by saying in verse 35, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. And again, what he's talking about is preaching and teaching, exercising preaching authority over men in the church by virtue of a God-ordained role. That's all. And so they were tolerating this. Back to Revelation 2, they were tolerating and allowing Jezebel to do this as she elevated herself to this role and nobody was able to seem to stop her. Huge compromise. Boy, this is relevant in our culture. We got problems with this all over the place here in the Bay Area in the state of California from uh, sexual immorality, compromise with the world, letting worldliness in the church and the church going out and compromising and being tantalized by the world, trying to balance the two at the same time, uh, a distorted, unbiblical role of men and women in the church, let alone in the world and in the home. So this is totally relevant for us. We can really be guided by what Jesus is saying here. It is His church. We need to obey so there was great compromise going on. Uh, he says, so she's teaching things she shouldn't be teaching, usurping a role she shouldn't have anyway, and she's leading people astray. She's, leading, uh, she's re- leading, leading true believers astray. I think this woman was not saved. 
But she was still be able to use by Satan to lead true believers astray into thinking wrong. So much so that even true Christians were being led astray so that they compromised and committed acts of sexual immorality of some sort. This goes on today. We've got churches even right here in the Bay Area, historic mainline denominations, who are not only condoning homosexuality and gay marriage, they're publicizing it. It's on the homepage of their website and on the billboards in front of their churches. So this would be comparable. This kind of gross compromise. So there's sexual immorality and eating things sacrificed to idols. That phrase, eating things sacrificed to idols, always involved some kind of illegitimate idolatry to some pagan deity or god. And actual believers were being tempted to do that. And then Jesus gets angry and He says, I gave her time to repent. She doesn't want to. She is hardened. She is resolute. She will not repent. Jesus knows it. So that's it. Time is out. So that's why He says in verse 22, Behold, behold, a judgment is about to come from Jesus Himself. And He says, Behold, I will cast her upon a bed. of." This woman was into sexual immorality and spent most of her time on her back in a bed. That's what Jesus is saying. Well, I'll throw her on a bed. I'm going to throw her down. The terminology he uses is, is harsh. I will cast her. I will throw her down. That is brutal. That is graphic. This is an act of judgment. She's reaping what she has sown. Jesus says, I, the Lord Jesus Christ, will cast her, literally throw her down upon a bed of sickness. Specifically, a bed of judgment, a bed of death, and from eternal perspective, the bed of hell itself is literally what that phrase means. Behold, I will cast her upon a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her, I'm going to cast them into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. They got caught into it. Scathing rebuke. Verse 23, And I will kill her children with pestilence. There it is. The strongest statement probably in the Bible from Jesus Christ Himself. Talking to the church, not the world. Talking to professing believers, not unbelievers. I will kill her children with pestilence. That is mind-boggling that this is Jesus talking. And as a result, all the churches will know that I am the one who searches the minds and the hearts and I will give to each human being according to their deeds. You cannot get saved by your works, but every one of us will be judged by our works. Believers will be judged by their works with respect to rewards we will and will not receive in heaven. We will not be punished for our evil deeds, if you've already become a Christian. So this is a sobering reminder from the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. He knows what we're doing. And so this is a call for us. This is a call for GBF to be pure, to not be compromised, to make a priority of good, sound teaching and, and holy living by the grace of God and staying humble and acknowledging our own sinfulness on an individual and corporate basis because we want to please the Lord Jesus Christ. We want His blessing, not His judgment, right? Right? I want Jesus' blessing in my life, not His judgment. Now, not everybody was a compromiser in Thyatira. There's all, God's always got His faithful remnant. The faithful few. We don't actually know how many, but that's in verse 24. He says, But I say to you, the rest of you in Thyatira who did not hold this teaching, some of them weren't buying it. They weren't confronting it, but they weren't buying it either. So they're not involved. So that rebuke of threatening is not for them. You haven't known the deep things of Satan as this lady is teaching them and as they're calling them. But, so I play, but I place no other burden on you. You're doing fine. Keep loving. Keep, keep your faith. Keep persevering. Keep saying no to sin and temptation whenever it 
presses in around you. And then finally in verse 24, he says, Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. You'll get your reward. I will bless you. It's worth the wait. That's the condemnation. And finally is the invitation to anybody who will listen. And I just I like that Jesus ends every letter and every word to every church with good news. Leaves on a good note. That's how you should leave church, right? You should be leaving encouraged as a believer. Hope. The promises of God. That He goes before you. That's what Jesus does. He's a gracious Savior. He's not going to leave us hanging, condemned, guilt hanging over our head. So let's look at the good news, the invitation. And the invitation is vice regents with Christ. This is exciting. This is amazing. The promise to the overcomer. Anybody who's a Christian out there, if you're a Christian, this is for you. And this is a promise you're going to receive in the future. After you die. It's for the future. It is not now. The one who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to, to the Christian, to him I will give authority over the nations. This is right out of Psalm 2. In the future someday, God's kingdom is going to come down on earth literally. It's called the millennial kingdom. Revelation chapter 20. Christ is going to reign on earth for 1,000 years. And His believers are going to reign with Him. They're going to be His co-regents. And He's going to rule over the nations. He's going to judge angels. He's going to be President Jesus over the entire earth. And we get to be in His cabinet. Hallelujah. That's what this is saying. To you I will give authority over the nations. Well, what kind of authority, Lord Jesus? What will be the sign of my authority? Well, verse 27. And you shall rule over them with a rod of iron. That is a royal scepter. With power and authority. That will be your sign of royalty. You'll reign with Christ on behalf of Christ as His vice regents. What are you going to do? Well, part of it is going to be judgment. Actually, much of that reigning that he's talking about is going to be judgmental. Devastation. Look at it. Verse 27, He shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. As the vessels of the pot are smashed to pieces. That is destructive. That is iconoclastic. That is devastating. That is demolition. Wow. Some nine-year-old boy probably says, wow, that sounds fun. But it's part of ruling on behalf of Christ in an authoritative manner. And a lot of this has to do with judgment. It's an amazing privilege. And they're doing this with the authority of God Himself. And that's why as you came in, that was not a fig newton or a piece of trident gum. Hopefully he didn't try to chew it. That was a piece of pottery that had been smashed. Just by way of reminder or token, if you're a believer someday, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to give you incredible authority to rule with a rod of iron with authority as a judge over the nation. It's going to be glorious. And it's all in the future. It is not now. It is not in this lifetime. Christians have made that mistake throughout church history trying to uh, enact the millennial kingdom right now. And they go out in judgment with a rod of iron and condemning sinners and you're going to hell and smashing and destroying. That is not the time. This is The church age is the time of grace, of patience, of humility, of doing nothing but preaching the Gospel. The time of devastation, that's in the future. In the next life. We don't need a theocracy right now on earth in America. Christians have tried that to great peril throughout history and been a horrible witness to the church. That will come in the future. There will be a theocracy where Jesus is President Jesus on earth in the millennium. It's coming. It's future. All these promises at the end of all these letters are future after we die when we are with Christ in glory. The second part of the promise he says, and I'm also going to give the, every, every one of you the morning star. If you're a Christian, you're going to receive the morning star someday in the future. What is the morning star? 
Uh, this could be a reference, and it probably is, to Daniel chapter 12, where it's describing the millennial kingdom in the future when saints will get to rule on behalf of the Messiah, and it says they will shine like the sun, even like the stars of heaven. This is talking about royal, regal uh, rule on behalf of Christ in glory in the future during the millennium with the Messiah. That is the morning star. Matthew 13, Jesus said the same thing, that the righteous someday will shine like the sun in the kingdom of God. I'm going to give you the morning star. You're going to shine. You're going to be a morning star. You're going to shine like the morning star. We're going to reflect the glory of Jesus. Matthew, uh, Revelation 22:16 says that Jesus is the bright morning star, which means all we're, we're going to reflect the glory of Jesus Christ in the future, in the millennium. And he closes with this, 29, to you, Christian, to me, to anybody that will listen, even unbelievers, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, says through Jesus, through John the Apostle, through the Word of God today. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. So if you're a Christian, be reminded of these practical priorities. Staying faithful with a heart of love, with pure doctrine and even pure living in honor to Christ despite persecution, knowing that in the end you will be rewarded for your deeds of faithfulness by Jesus Christ Himself and you will shine for all eternity like the stars of heaven. Thank You, Lord Jesus. Let's go ahead and pray to Him. Father, we do thank You for the truth of Your Word and how how it cuts to the heart, God. It's actually scandalous to the human mind and the way we think. Conjures up guilt. But it's You, Lord. It's You speaking the truth and love. So I do pray that we would have ears to hear. God, this is a great opportunity for us as believers to examine our own hearts. These were words You spoke to a church and these were words You spoke to professing Christians and indeed real Christians. May we be sobered by that and allow You through Your Holy Spirit to examine our own hearts, our own minds, our own words, our lifestyle, our commitments, our priorities, our involvement with the world. God, uh, convict us. Set us straight. Do a great work in our hearts this day as we seek to live for You. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.